Good evening, everyone. I'd like to welcome, on behalf of the Brooklyn Zen Center and the Jewish Meditation Center, Norman Fisher back to the Brooklyn Zen Center. Every time Norman comes into town, for whatever the reason, um, often to see his family, he takes time away to come here and give a talk. And uh, we know you don't have to do that, and we deeply appreciate that you do and that you're foregoing time with your grandchild sometimes to do so. For those of you who don't know Norman, he is a senior Dharma teacher at the San Francisco Zen Center. He's the founder and spiritual director for the Everyday Zen Foundation. Um, he is an author and a poet. He has written books that span from spiritual interpretations of the Odyssey to translations of the Psalms to uh, books on working with young men in their spiritual direction and our own spiritual maturation, not to mention nearly a dozen books of poetry. So, um, and he's been a wonderful advisor for this community and I believe also for the Jewish Meditation Center. So, thank you very much for coming back. Welcome. Thanks, Greg. Hi everybody. Everybody's okay. Mahayana Buddhism starts with faith. Deep faith that the existence of things, the isness of things, their being, the way things uh, shine in their just existing beyond all of our wishes and projections onto them, just that things are at all. This is perfect. That's the faith that Mahayana Buddhism begins with. Which, of course, seems to go against all common sense, right? <laughs> Things don't seem all that great, uh, usually. Uh, all you have to do is sit on your meditation cushion for five minutes and look at your own mind and you'll quickly see that things seem not to be perfect. Uh, even less than five minutes of looking at the newspaper and it will appear to you that things are not perfect. So it's kind of astonishing that Mahayana Buddhism proposes that exactly underneath this inside and outside stuff, or right on top of it, or inside of it, or, or as it, there is this perfection, this shining, luminous thusness uh, that all existence shares, that, that we and everything else is Buddha, is the proposition, is the faith of Mahayana Buddhism. 
What if you actually felt that? What, what would your life be like if you actually seriously felt that? Things would be different, right? Things would be considerably different. You would feel different about almost everything in your life. Your whole motivation for what you do and how you go about doing it would be different. Your daily activity would be different. Your thoughts would be different if you actually felt deep down that everything was just by virtue of the fact that it existed and it came forth shining as existing. If you had uh, a kind of a, an appreciation for that uh, as something that, after all, doesn't have to be here, but is in its perfection, you know, your life would be completely different. This is the teaching in Mahayana Buddhism that's often called uh, the teaching of Buddha nature. All things are, as Dogen uh, misread the text on purpose, you know, not, not all things have Buddha nature, but all things are uh, Buddha nature. So that's the teaching of Mahayana Buddhism, but it's actually it's, it's the same teaching uh, in our own Western religious tradition. Uh, in Genesis, in the, in the Bible, in the Torah, at the end of every day of creation, God says, it is good. And, and this is not a comparative good, because there's nothing to compare it to, right? It never was before, but in its being, to begin with, uh, it is good, meaning, you know, it is perfect. Absolutely good. Being itself is absolutely good. And even the suffering that ensues after Adam and Eve eat the apple is good. It's bad, of course, but also it's good. Because it's what causes the rest of the story to unfold. And there's no mistake in God's plan. There's a teaching I found out about this uh, of the Baal Shem Tov in a text called Zva'at Harivash. And this is what it says. One might wonder, in the context of the creation, the Torah states several times, it was good. And at the conclusion of creation, it says, and behold, it was very good. However, in the book of Deuteronomy it is written, See, I have placed before you life and the good and death and evil. So where did the evil come from? And the Baal Shem Tov says, One cannot interpret this in line with our speaking of real evil. In actuality, evil too is good, except that it is the lowest level of absolute good. Thus, when effecting good 
the evil too becomes good. But when you sin, God forbid, then it becomes evil. Take, for example, a broom sweeping the house. In the context of clearing the house, it has good qualities. It may be a low level of good, but still it's good. But when you take the broom and hit a child with it, the broom becomes evil at the time of hitting a child. So there's the same uh, idea in, in Buddhism. This world in Buddhism is called the Saha world. There are many worlds, many possible worlds, many existing worlds, and this one is called the Saha world. And it's said to be a world in which there is just enough suffering. The suffering is necessary. The evil is necessary. And there's just enough suffering and evil to give us the incentive to awaken. If there's too much, then it's exhausting. We don't have the energy to awaken. If there's not enough, we have no incentive to awaken. We'll just be lazy and loaf. But in this world, there's just enough for us to have the incentive to awaken to our Buddha nature. But it's also, for that exact reason, a dangerous world. Because if we don't awaken to our Buddha nature, if instead we go on and on with our suffering, inspired by our suffering not to see ourselves as we are, but instead be driven by our suffering to further suffering, we, we really could make a big mess out of our lives and out of our world. And I think you all understand exactly what I'm talking about because I think we can all see this in our own experience. Anyway, uh, these teachings form the background of the famous Zen story of Zhao Zhao's dog. That's my subject for tonight. Pretty famous story, but m many people don't realize that there are a number of versions of the story. I, uh, I'm not sure which one, you know, I, I imagine I know which one is the first version and so on, but I'm not really sure. I don't know if scholars can figure it out. Maybe it doesn't matter. Anyway, the one that's most famous is the version that you find in the Gateless Barrier. Uman Khan. This is the version uh, in which a monk asks Zhao Zhao, does a dog, or maybe there's a dog there, does this dog, or the dog, have Buddha nature? And, you know, as I've been saying, Mahayana Buddhism clearly teaches that all things, without exception, are Buddha nature. So, nevertheless, this monk says, does the dog have Buddha nature? And Jaja says, no. Uh, Japanese mu, maybe you've heard this exotic word, which just means no. <laughs> uh, 
So that's the most famous version. That's the, sort of the abbreviated version. <laughs> if you look it up, uh, if you look up the story in the record of Zhao Zhao, you know, his sort of recorded sayings and doings, in that version, the same thing happens. The monk, a monastic, says, you know, does the dog have blue nature? And Zhao Zhao says no. But in this version, the monk then says, well, why not? You know, if everything, if everything has blue nature, how could there be like one exception, this dog? No. So why doesn't the dog have Buddha nature? And Jajo in that version answers, because the dog still has karmic consciousness. In the Book of Serenity, another collection of koans, this story appears as the 18th case, and it's still another version. In this version, the monk again says, does the dog have Buddha nature? And Jaja says, yes. And this time the monastic says, well, then uh, if the dog has Buddha nature, then why, why does it appear in this mangy you know, sack of skin? <laughs> and Jaja answers, uh, because he knows, yet deliberately transgresses. Now, uh, first I have to say, today I was uh, walking around the neighborhood, and uh, there, were, there was a couple walking down the street with their three or four dogs. And these were really nice dogs. Each one was completely different from the other one, was very large, and like a uh, big poodle with very long legs and gorgeously groomed, and two small ones, uh, really good-looking dogs. Around here, I think mostly the dogs are very good-looking. The people also. <laughs> uh, lately, I was uh, in Mexico, where I go often. In Mexico, the, the people are also very good-looking, but. The dogs, uh, at least where I was, not so much. <laughs> uh, where I go to Mexico, there, there's a couple dogs there that I've known for quite a while, and they're really getting old and kind of mangy and tired, and they don't look too good. I think that's the kind of dog that is described in this story, you know, a mangy, tired old dog, you know. Has Buddha nature? If it has Buddha nature, how come it's such a mess? How come we're such a mess? If we have Buddha nature, like why are we in the shape we're in, collectively? Because we know, but we deliberately transgress. So yeah, uh, we really have a lot of problems. I think, you know, maybe we are lucky. Everybody sitting here in this room, unusually lucky uh, in the run of possible humanity in this world. We're all pretty lucky, actually. If you're in this room, you're pretty lucky. But I bet you have problems, too. I bet you have some suffering also. 
So, and, and what about uh, those not so lucky? And what about the world that we've all collectively created? There's a lot of suffering. So what about this Buddha nature? You know, what, what comfort is there in this Buddha nature uh, in a troubled world? So Zhao response to this uh, monk is, I think, very profound. He's saying to the monk, and maybe to us, don't complain and don't yearn for something else. See the suffering that's there. Know it for what it is and grieve over it. But recognize that this is just the suffering we need. Yes, the confusion of our own minds, our own unhappiness is real, the confusion of the world is real. Uh, when Adam and Eve ate that apple, yeah, it was a disaster. And they had to take responsibility for it. Even though it wasn't their fault. Because this is the way life goes. This is the way life is made. This is what has to happen. And once we admit it, see it for what it is and take responsibility for it, we also see that it's beautiful once we embrace it for what it is and really see it for what it is. It's painful and it's beautiful. And if we don't awaken to its nature, it's terrible. Evil becomes evil when we don't see uh, what our life is. Actually, uh, in the 18th case of the Book of Serenity, the story goes on. That's not the end of the story. Uh, another monk uh, says to Zhao Zhou, does the dog have put in nature? And this time Zhao Zhou says, no. And the monk says, if all things have Buddha nature, why not this dog? And Jaja says, because the dog still has karmic consciousness, as, as before in the other version, because the dog still has impulsive consciousness, karmic consciousness. But wait a minute. You know, karmic consciousness is just life. All consciousness is karmic consciousness, right? We, we all have karmic consciousness. Basically, life means you have to eat, right? So you go toward the food. In other words, life means you go toward what furthers life and you go away from what threatens life. Don't we all do that? That's what we do. Because we're alive. Everything that's alive has this kind of impulsive consciousness to go toward what benefits it and away from what is destructive to it. This is true of everything that lives. I know about this because uh, my wife teaches science in seventh grade, and for years she's been telling me I have to go to school to see something under the microscope, and I never got there. So she brought the microscope home, 
and she dropped a drop of water on a slide. And she showed me what was going on in this drop of water. It was the most astonishing thing. I watched it for a really long time. Little one-celled creatures of all shapes and sizes zipping around. No brain, no personality, no thinking, no decisions, but moving around, going toward the food. Always going toward the food. And if they were the food, because some of them, you know, were the food, then they were going away from the other ones that were coming toward them to get them as the food. And it was quite something to sit there and watch this drama unfold on and on and on. It was quite dramatic. And I thought, yeah, isn't that how it is? That's our life. That's what we do. And it was a beautiful thing to watch. Beautiful, tragic, sad. But thanks to this situation, we're alive. Thanks to this situation, there's love. There's beauty. There's inspiration. There's sorrow. And so on. Thanks to this situation, there's violence, selfishness, and all the problems of the world. Have you noticed that human beings have a very hard time getting along? Even nice people who love one another have a hard time getting along. It's really tough, isn't it? So this is how it is. This is being human, or being an amoeba. Sacred, perfect creatures. At the same time, creatures driven to create all kinds of problems and tragedies that are very serious. And all these problems have to be addressed. They cannot be ignored. And this is why spiritual practice actually takes some work. It's not really enough to come now and then and meditate and get peaceful. Or to go to uh, your synagogue or church or whatever it is, your mosque, and pray, and then forget about it. It takes a lot more effort than that. It takes diligence, perseverance, intelligence, and a lot of intention. And we sit on our cushions and we begin to notice the arising and passing away of our afflictive emotions. We begin to notice how we hook onto our afflictive emotions and justify them and create problems. We see this in our own minds and we begin to look around 
at the world we're living in and to begin to identify the ways in which we can encourage what's positive and oppose in ourselves and around us uh, what's negative. So it takes a lot of effort. And at the same time, we work on recognizing that at the, at the same moment, everything is also perfect. Everything is luminous, just the way it is. And we don't need to be desperate or hopeless as we're making the kind of effort we're making. Because things will go as they need to go. And our effort is part of that. I think that in the book of Serenity, where you know you have Zhao Zhao giving two opposite answers uh, to the same uh, question, I think that the reason for this is that uh, Zen makes a special study of coming to the realization, especially on our cushions, this is the effort we make in meditation, but also in our daily life, to recognize how much we're pushed around and pushed out of shape by our ideas and our concepts. You know, when I say this, it may sound like an abstract consideration, but actually it's not. We're living uh, every day according to a set of received ideas and preconceptions far deeper in us than we realize. And mostly, these ideas and preconceptions that we're usually not aware of are oppressing us. And then causing us to oppress you know, our friends and our loved ones and make a mess out of the world. Because we're all wearing blinders. There's a wonderful phrase in Zen, uh, someone who carries a board, you know, like a carpenter who carries a great big beam so that the carpenter can only see over here. And when the carpenter goes to look over here, this whole half of the world is blocked by the beam. That's how we are. Our vision blocked uh, by our preconceptions. If, as research uh, you know, on the brain is now showing, and as our religions have always claimed, if we're essentially meant to be compassionate and caring people that were built that way, we're blinded by our preconceptions and our conceptualizations, and it makes us hurtful and violent people, selfish people, not because we're meant to be selfish, but because we're 
pushed out of shape by these preconceptions. And one of the main things that happens to us when we sit on our meditation cushions, uh, time after time after time, year after year, is that we begin to develop the ability, you know, very organically, to see through, or maybe sit through, our confused thinking. Little by little, on our cushions, we become more intensely present in our lives than our thinking will allow. You know, our whole lives are mediated by our thinking. N nothing wrong with thinking. Just don't let your whole life be mediated by your thinking. When we sit on our cushions and return to our body and breath in the present moment over and over and over again, we are more able to actually be there for what's happening rather than to live in a fog of reactive interpretation and ideology. And goodness knows, you know, our religions themselves can keep us in the same fog. Even Zen could be a fog of doctrine. Judaism can be a fog of doctrine and obligation and attachment. So in other words, being religious doesn't save you from this. That's Zhao Zhao's point really, isn't it? We all like it, you know, when the dog has Buddha nature, when we have Buddha nature, when everything is perfect. It's a nice feeling, you know. Ah, sit on the, and meditate and see how everything is perfect. We like that, right? Wonderful. We believe it. We would like to believe it. But if you make that into an ideology, if you make that into a principle, if you decide, now I'm going to see the whole world through that lens, it's just another board you're carrying on your shoulder. You can't stick to anything. Any idea that you think is right and good and you hold on to it, no matter how pure an idea it is, it becomes toxic in the end. No matter how nice and correct it may seem, no matter how much you approve of it and believe in it, in the end it becomes blinded. The uh, introduction to this story in the Book of Serenities says this, a gourd floating on the water. You know those gourds, the hollow gourd? You ever, you ever see it? Float on the water, you push it down, and it turns over. A jewel in the sunlight, it has no definite shape. It cannot be attained by mindlessness nor known by mindfulness. Immeasurably great people are turned around in the stream of words. 
Is there anyone who can escape? And that's what happens to our ideas, you know, like a gourd. When you push down on it, it pops up the opposite way. That's what happens to all of our ideas and thoughts. Push hard enough on them and they pop up the opposite way. The truth is like this. You can't reduce it to something known or understood. It'll pop up differently on each occasion. Sometimes no, and sometimes yes. Like a jewel in the light. When you look at it from another angle, it looks completely different. Now, everybody talks about the virtues of mindfulness. But mindfulness can also be a big attachment, a big confusion. And being mindless is no good either. We're all getting turned around by our ideas and our needs all the time. How do we practice? Well, we do it the way Jajo does in this story. Meeting each occasion definitively and then letting go and being ready for the next occasion, which is just what you do on your cushion. You're ready for this breath. You completely give yourself to it. You embrace it fully and you let go. And you're ready for what happens next. And it might be completely different. I guess Xiaozhou uh, uh, became known for responses to the question, does a dog have Buddha nature? They didn't ask other people this question, as far as I know. But they seem to ask Zhao after the first time, many times. And there's actually another place in the record of Zhao where someone else asked him, does a dog have Buddha nature? And this time he said, the door of every house leads to the capital. So, so yes, we're going somewhere. There is a journey involved. Even if the someplace we're going is exactly the place we started from. We are on our way to the capital. That's, where, that's the place where important decisions are made. That's the place where real power is wielded. And I don't think this means a worldly power, a political power, because ultimately, I think, practice means giving that up. Even if we have to engage in it for some reason, because someone has to engage in it, maybe it's us. But even if we do, we have to give it up. In other words, the capital is the place where we exercise true sovereignty over our lives. The true sovereignty over the precious 
gift of life that we have been given for a while. And this kind of sovereignty means letting go. Letting go so that we can live with full power and full dignity. In the Zen uh, initiation ceremony of receiving precepts, this spring it happens that I've been doing a lot of these ceremonies. We've been doing them in different, we, we have many uh, sanghas, groups, and it seems like uh, for some reason this spring in all the groups, three or four of the different groups, we've had precept ceremonies. And, and so I've, you know, the words of the ceremony are really much in my mind. And actually, in the beginning of the ceremony, it's, it, you say, the, the officiant says, in faith that we are Buddha, we enter Buddha's way. In Judaism, maybe we would say, in faith that we are God's children, God's intimate friends. We harmonize with God's commandments. Not as disobedient children, coerced, but as sacred beings sharing a heart. That's the life that you live when you arrive at the capital. So just like Shazhou's double-sided response uh, in this story, our life, our practice is double-sided. On one side, again, to refer to the precepts taking ritual in Zen, on one side we say, I vow to avoid causing suffering. I vow to avoid evil. I vow to do positive actions to cause benefit. I, I make that commitment. That's the commitment I make for this lifetime. And this is the path of, of cultivation, the path of effort, the path of diligence, the path of ethical conduct, the path of spiritual cultivation, to overcome confusion and create clarity, which begins with a deep recognition of our confusion and our pain. So that's why it's not easy, you know, we don't like to do that. We don't like to see our confusion and our pain and, and to admit that and see how deep it goes. It's very uncomfortable. So we want to justify it and say it's not so bad or it's their fault. So this side of the path begins with that recognition. Studying our pain. Studying our confusion. And we forgive ourselves for it. And we take care of it. And we begin to see how much our 
sense of identity and our whole belief system all this time has been supporting that confusion and that pain. And then gradually, through that honest recognition and that deep study, we begin to stop doing and thinking and feeling these things that cause us and others so much harm. And then, begins to come into our view ways that we could actually do beneficial things for others. It just sort of begins to dawn on us, you know what? If we only aren't any more under the thumb of all of this confusion and pain, maybe we could actually be of benefit to others. And then the whole apparatus of positive beneficial action that Mahayana Buddhism so beautifully proposes uh, comes into view. We practice generosity, beautiful ethical conduct, powerful energy, patience and forbearance, meditation, wisdom, vowing, skillful means, beneficial power, salvific knowledge, a whole range of possible ways of acting and living comes into view. And now it seems like it would really be possible for us to not anymore be victims of our own minds and of the world around us, but instead to be a resource. We could actually be somebody who might be able to benefit other people and be somebody who might actually be able to, in some very real way and concrete way, be a source for benefit and goodness in this troubled world. And really, there's no greater pleasure than this. And all that's one side of the equation. That's the side of no Buddha nature. In other words, we have to work on ourselves, on our lives. We have to make all that effort, and there's a vast effort that's possible. In other words, from the beginning of noticing what a mess we are, right, which is hard to do, all the way up to becoming a blessing to others. There's a lot of work in that trajectory. And that's the side of no Buddha nature. That's the side of the long journey and the heroic effort. The other side is the side of Buddha nature. We go beyond effort, we go beyond helping or not helping, we go beyond Buddha nature or no Buddha nature. We live the life that God lives when God creates a day and says, good, that's good. We see that it's within our human capacity 
to live intimately within the nature of things as they really are without any need to change them or make them somehow better or more important or more worthy than they are. We see that everything is good. Everything is absolutely good. And this doesn't mean that now we're somehow perfect, far from it. Nor does it mean that we're enlightened or wise or good or wonderful people. I think it's almost the opposite of this. It means that we have appreciation for whatever arises in humility. Because we know we possess nothing inside. And we seek nothing outside. And we're very aware of our many limitations. But we're willing to enter our lives completely. In other words, whatever is appearing as our life on this moment, we're willing to say, okay, I didn't necessarily ask for this. I don't necessarily like it. But okay, I will enter this moment of my life completely because it's good. Well, let me finish with one more saying of Jojo, which is not about dogs or Buddha nature or anything like that. But I like I like this. Jojo's my favorite Zen master. You know, I really like Jojo. There's a lot of Zen masters that are famous for shouting and yelling and so on. But Jojo is. They used to say that uh, when he spoke, light would emanate from his lips because he spoke very simply. Um, didn't make a big fuss, wasn't, wasn't famous for his power, uh, and said very quiet things, but um, to me, uh, very wonderful things. So here's another saying of his. A monastic said, uh, no, it begins with Jajo's statement. He said uh, once, I do not enjoy hearing the word Buddha. Do not enjoy hearing the word Buddha. And the monastic said, well, do you help people or not? And Jaja said, I help people. And the monastic said, how? And Jaja said, not aware of the deep principle and futilely laboring to calm my mind. <laughs> and the monastic said, uh, you said it was deep, but what's the principle? <laughs> and Jaja said, I don't hold on to a basis. And the monastic said, very deep, but what's the principle? And Jaja said, the principle is answering you. <laughs> so, uh, 
this is this is basic. Back back to the beginning. And back to where we always are and we always have been. We are living together. There is no such thing as a solitary, lonely human being. This is not a possible thing. We are always living together. We are sitting together. We are standing together. We're walking together, talking together, meeting one another. That's our human life. We're sharing the teachings that we never quite understand. We're trying our best in the middle of an impossible situation in which nothing works at all and everything works perfectly. Even when we lose everything. which we all no doubt will. And, th and that's just the way it is. So that's what Shaja was saying to this monastic. I'm trying. And I'm failing. I have no basis to hold on to. But I know that we're in this together. Absolutely. Uh, together. Uh, and that's good. That's good. So I wonder if, uh, let's just take the last couple of minutes here to practice with this story. Okay? You know, for that, just a few minutes. If you come back to your good sitting posture and your breath. Feel your body sitting here. Feel your connection to the earth through the cushion and the floor, through the feeling of the weight of your body. It's literally the case that the earth is holding you and embracing you, otherwise we'd all be bouncing our head against the ceiling. We are supported. Feel that support. Feel the life force within you as you breathe in and out. The breathing is breathing you. Your life is carrying you along, taking you to the capital.
So for a few minutes, uh, when you breathe out, just repeat in your mind with every exhale uh, the word no. Whatever uh, you can sense in the body, whatever you can hear, whatever thoughts or emotions arise in the mind, no, no. None of it really exists. It's a beautiful dream. Breathing no, no. No boundaries. Nothing to hold on to. Feel that no in your belly. Uh, dissolve everything into the word. The feeling of the word. Uh, no. for a few more minutes. Breathe with the word yes. Every exhale. Breathe with the feeling of the word yes in your belly. Every thought, every emotion, every sensation in the body, is all-inclusive and perfect. You, you would never need anything else but this. Not breathing, yes, yes. Absolutely yes. To everything that appears, whether you like it or not. <laughs> <laughs>
that for a few minutes. And, and maybe you could imagine what it would be like to uh, continue. Like, you could do this. You could say, take a month. And for a month, practice no. Every, every day in your meditation, sit with this no. And then go forth into your day and practice it all day long. All day long, breathe this no. Whenever you think, you know, whenever you have a moment to yourself, you get, get so good at it that it would just pop into your mind when you, when you weren't noticing, just would be there. And imagine letting your days and nights unfold in the light of this no. So do that for a month, and then the next month switch and practice yes every day in meditation, breathing this yes until it pops up all day long. Yes, yes, and everything was this yes. You could do that, you know. It would be really interesting, don't you think? It would really be something. I think it would change your days. Do you think it would? I think it would. It would change your days. It would give you a different perspective. Because you have a perspective, don't you? Right? Already you have a highly developed perspective, which may or may not be doing you any good. <laughs> so, so why not see what would happen if you kind of uh, dealt with that perspective differently? Challenged it in some way. So, should we take a few minutes to see if anybody has anything to say? Is that, is that good for time? Do we, do we have that much time? Just a few minutes. Anybody have, have any comments or uh, complaints? Or <laughs> yeah. Question about um, mindfulness being yeah. a trap? Yeah. Could you explain that? Well, I didn't say mindfulness is a trap. I didn't say that, right? I said one could make mindfulness into a trap by creating a concept or uh, an idea of what mindfulness is and you know berating oneself for being insufficiently mindful, this kind of thing. Uh, real mindfulness, you know, is beyond marks. It's beyond characteristics. It's just a presence. So a lot of times, I, I find that uh, people often um, confuse, I, in my opinion, confuse mindfulness with self-consciousness. Am I aware of all my thoughts? Am I aware of everything that's going on? Oh, I'm aware of everything that's going on. I'm mindful. Oh, I didn't see what was going on. I'm, now I'm not mindful. So that, to me, that's a kind of a trap. Mindf real mindfulness is simply being present with your life. And if being present with your life is noticing that you're not present, that's being present then. So mindfulness is, is not uh, something. It's exactly not something. <laughs> but I think a lot of times we make it into something. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Yeah. So mindfulness should be something that's very relaxed. 
and extremely permissive in, in the best sense of that word, extremely forgiving. It's not a skill we're developing like other skills. It's just the opposite. It's releasing ourselves to being in our lives. Yes, they always they always interfuse each other. In fact, in fact, they are two sides. It's one thing. <laughs> and one of the thoughts I had is this idea of um, this generosity of spirit that arises. That when it arises, with uh, understanding that even though we're offering ourselves or we're at, we're helping, that nothing needs to really be helped. That that's the way it really creates no more karmic consciousness because it's it doesn't have. Um, that extra little in it of I'm trying to help. I mean, this is what I'm yes, yes. for myself. Yes, right? yes, exactly. But when I, even though I have a generosity of spirit, if if I don't remember the where Buddha nature and everything is okay, and actually nothing has to be helped, exactly, it gets a little messy. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. right, right, and, and uh, especially for you, right? you should remember this because you're you're in a helping profession. If you're in a helping profession. You need to remember this every day. And maybe the best way to look at it is, uh, this is like, I, I, I really feel this way, and this is so counterintuitive, it's so much not what people think. But to me, there's nothing more fun than the religious life. And the religious life has to be fun. This is the opposite of what everybody thinks, right? <laughs> but it has to be that way. Otherwise, I mean, look at, look at what goes on. People think that the religious life is this sort of grim, obligatory thing that we're all trying to escape from. Like we often get out of that, but it's the opposite of that. I mean, we're, we're getting out of what is the most fun and into a very difficult problem, which we call normal life. <laughs> no, we don't like normal life. Let's forget about that. Let's live a religious life, which is a life of ultimate fun because we can relax when we know who we are, which means we know that we've been given this incredible gift of life and it's so brief and it's always right. But we know that life is a joy. Even when it's terrible, it's a joy. And so if we're trying to have a life of helping other people, we better remember that. Otherwise, it becomes like really grim. Because the more people you help, the more people there are to help. There's no end to the need, right? Well, if we're going to be able to sustain that kind of living, we have to have fun. And we have to realize that it's always only been fun. So we have to be able to feel all the pain and also the joy at the same time. And, th and that's exactly what this teaching is about, as you're, as you're implying. That's exactly what this is talking about. They're both at the same time. So you've got to make effort. And you know, there is no way to live without effort, right? You can't, like, you can't really stay in bed all day long. It'd be bad for your health, right? You really have to get out and do stuff. 
I mean, every day we all get up and do stuff. You have to, you have to, even if you're on vacation. You know? I find vacation is just as much effort as anything else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you have to do something, and uh, and there's no end to doing something and making effort, and it has to be fun, and it has to be full of forgiveness and delight. And, and that's exactly what this is saying: is that you have to make effort, and it has to be a joyful release. And that's our life, while it lasts. Yeah. So thanks for that. Um, I had an experience of uh, when we were saying the no. Yeah. It was kind of depressing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, saying yeah, the yeah. S, a smile just came to my face. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. Imagine saying the no. Yeah. For a whole month. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unless maybe I just, uh, I didn't completely understand it and I, I, I think that's it. Something. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's it. Yeah, no, no uh, it sounds like, yeah, I could see where it would be depressing. Oh, it's very negative, like nothing exists. Yeah, or, yeah, no, so, no it has a certain negative ring to it, doesn't it? <laughs> but what it means is, and I, and I actually said this, but the word no is so powerful. You know, we're conditioned, right, to think of it in, in a certain way. And, and that's why it's very good that it is the word no. And because exactly the point. We like yes, and we don't like no. So we live a life in which when yes comes along, we're happy guys. When no comes along, it's depressing. Well, unfortunately, no comes along all too frequently, <laughs> right? And this is our problem right there. So what this is telling us is that no doesn't mean, damn, I didn't get what I wanted. No means no boundary, no barrier, no substance, no bottom, no limitation. It's still no, but it's a no that isn't the no we're thinking of. It's a no that doesn't trap us into yes and no. It's a no beyond yes and no. And usually in the classical koan practice, when you practice this no, the whole point is to realize that no is, includes yes. There, there actually isn't a yes that doesn't include a no, and there isn't a no that doesn't include a yes, right? I mean, every moment comes because every moment goes, right? I mean, it sounds like, haha, funny Zen paradox, but isn't it true? I mean, this moment doesn't appear unless the last moment went away. Otherwise, how does this moment get here? It like bumps into the previous moment. Right? I mean, we call that time passing. We like being alive, right? But if we can't be alive if time doesn't pass. Don't you think that's true? If time passes, we die. Terrible. But we can't live unless we die. So every no has a yes. If we see the yes and the no as one thing, we can be happy. If we want the yes and we hate the no, we're, we're, we're in deep doo-doo. We're, we're in trouble. So, yeah, that's the thing. You have to see that the no is not negative. And if you practice it for a month, maybe you would get that. 
or, or not. <laughs> then he'd come running to me say, I, I, I was depressed before, and now I'm in total despair. <laughs> Greg will take, complain to him. I'll, I'll be in California. <laughs> I'll start with the yes. <laughs> start with the yes, maybe. That's probably a good idea. It's a good idea, yeah. <laughs> Okay. That's it. Anybody? Oh, okay. When you're attached and um, sternly attached to your blindness, to your board, yeah. um, how can you find the path to um, uh, motivation? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, you have to study your suffering. In other words, uh, when there's a lot of suffering because of big blind spot, that's what you're talking about? Is that what you mean? Something you're uh, attached to that you can't seem to get rid of? Yes, it's not wanting to leave the board, being too comfortable with your uh -huh. suffering. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, in that case, uh, you study your suffering. You study your mind and your heart and see where they're suffering. And try to stay with that suffering and understand it. See where it comes from. See what it looks like. Uh, and walking down the path of the suffering, uh, you find the motivation to let go. Does that make sense to you? Can you understand what I mean, uh, how that could be? Because I think what happens is when, when we have suffering, we want to go away from it, just like those little amoebas, you know? We want to go away from it. And so we have a reflex to go away from it, but we never do get away from it. In fact, oddly, the more we try to get away from it, the more it seems to be there. So, um, we have to turn around and, and look at the suffering, which sometimes maybe is harder at first, because uh, we think we can get around it. And so when we go toward it, it's harder at first, but actually it's better that way. So I hope you can make use of that. Thank you. Well. Um, I always like coming. I always tell people that Brooklyn Zen Center is my favorite Zen Center. And, and the Jewish Meditation Center is my favorite Jewish Meditation Center. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I have other Zen Centers where I practice and other Jewish Meditation Centers, these are my favorite ones. So I like coming here a lot. Thank you for listening and look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks, Greg, and community here. <coughs> yeah. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.